Welcome to the Value Investor TV podcast, the podcast that helps you grow your wealth and become financially independent. My name is Beko and my partner, Hari. Hello. Uh, welcome, guys, uh, for this episode. We're going to be talking about Kraft Heinz, pretty iconic brand in American history, American corporate history, American life. Uh, we'll talk about this brand today. Uh, so uh, kick us off with a s- disclaimer, please, Hari. Yeah, this is uh, the Value Investor TV podcast. We are a podcast that helps educate you and entertain you about the concepts that underlie value investing. We are not uh, financial advisors, nor do we know your specific financial situation. So if you're making any investment decisions, please consult with uh, the appropriate advisor. Great. Uh, Just a couple of things before we start. Um, As you guys know, most of you guys know, when we analyze a company, we go through a checklist um, and we have our own checklist. So if you guys are interested, please in- email us at info at valueinvestor.org, info at valueinvestor.org. Um, and also uh, something that we announced in the last episode, and a lot of you guys are already part of this. Uh, but um, if you guys want to be part of our Slack community, Slack is uh, it's an online chat uh, platform where you can come on talk to us directly, message us directly, uh, message each other directly, ask questions to us, or you know, propose a topic that we should discuss in the podcast. You can do all sorts of, you know, all of that um, in our Slack channel. Uh, so if you guys are, are uh, interested in being part of this group, please uh, email us at info at valueinvestor.org. Okay, Hari, let's get started with this checklist. Off the bat, the first question that we ask is this what does the company do uh, you should be able to answer this question in less than two sentences yeah i think most people here could uh, answer that question so Kraft heinz is a uh, you know a food manufacturer um, they are you know one of the uh, iconic uh, brands that have you know were merged in 2015 a merger between Kraft and uh, heinz uh, food. So the, you know, the pe- maker of ketchup, like Heinz ketchup and Kraft, you know, cheese and uh, various other, you know, products uh, merged together to make a giant, you know, food conglomerate. Um, and, you know, uh, amongst the brands that they own, I'll just read from this list, Kraft, Oscar Mayer, Heinz, Philadelphia, Lunchables, Velveeta, Planters, Maxwell House, uh, Orida, Kool-Aid and Jell-O. Uh, are amongst the uh, the brands that they own. Um, that was I was reading only from the U.S. list, but they actually have trademarks and brand names across the world uh, as well. So, in addition, uh, Canada and um, the uh, Europe and the rest of the world as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that I think that was a pretty straightforward question. A lot of us already know what Kraft Heinz uh, does. It's it's a conglomerate that has all these brands uh, as their portfolio. Yep. Our products and, 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 and product lines. Okay. Um, let's move on to kind of the meat of this section, which is the competitive advantage. Uh, does the company have a competitive advantage? Uh, describe them in the categories below. So do you want to, should we just go down the list or do you want to give us kind of a higher level view before we go down the list? Well, so I, I think one thing I want to say before we we get into the competitive advantages kind of just the overall feel that I got from reading this annual report. And, mm-hmm. you know, generally when I read an annual report, I would say 99% of the time you 
come away from reading it and feel a lot more comfortable about like, oh, there's a lot of things I didn't know about this business or there was something interesting that I just found out. Mm-hmm. And this is this was annual report did not have any of that. Um, and, you know, they barely talk about the actual business, um, you know, and what what's happening inside the business. You know, what is their kind of, um, you know, what they see as their competitive strengths versus others. Um, where their competition is trying to, you know, beat them and how they're going to kind of one up on them, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I was frankly very frustrated by reading this, you know, annual report because generally I, I find that the annual report is where I start with. I look at it, I read up on it. I try and understand what the company is trying to propose as why they have a competitive advantage. And then I go and look at, uh, you know, the conference calls and, you know, quarterly reports and other things. And I, frankly, I just stopped after the annual report because I was just, this was just tiresome to read. Um, frankly, it, it there was nothing there that I, I just kind of explained the business or made me understand, you know, how the food distribution works or, or anything like that. They didn't mention, you know, the competition from, uh, uh, and where it comes from. So, I, I mean, I got some details there, but, um, you know, I, I never felt comfortable with re after reading this to say I would move, you know, move on to an annual report. Right. And so <clears throat> I would actually stop my analysis right here. Right. I've read a little bit <laughs> and, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it's not, uh, you know, all of you out there who are listening and you're are paying attention to companies, you don't have time to read a thousand annual reports a year. Right. So when you you run into a, something like this, you kind of just want to stop and say, "Okay, I'll move on to the next thing," right? And that's where I felt felt like with this one is, I put in my you know hour and a half reading this, taking notes, trying to get a handle on it, and I just didn't get anywhere with it. So um, there was al- almost you know most of the time when I find a good company, I get excited, I want to read up on it, I want to learn more about it, and I just didn't feel that. So. Yeah. So long answer here is short answer here is competitive advantage. I'm going to do my best. I just didn't get a good feel from, mm-hmm. from doing this. And yeah. you, you know, that, that is unfortunate because I, I mean, I don't want this to be a, you know, a wasted episode because I do think there's some value for you guys to what we're going to talk about. But so we'll go through that. Um, here. Yeah. Let's, let's go through that. We'll go through this list, but I think, I, I think this is important to highlight here. Um, you know, you mentioned that, you know, this is, you know, as, as all of us, most of us who are listening to the podcast are retail investors and we don't do this professionally. We only have so much time at our hand to look at companies on our, on our downtime, right? So if you run into a problem like this where, you know, it's a well-known company, a lot of people understand what they do at, at least at a, at a high level and you dig deep into what they're trying to do through 10K and, you know, quarter reports and reports, which is kind of what you have, right? You don't have anything else but that most, most of the time to rely on to understand the business. And that's, you know, that's where you should be going. But if that source turns out to be very, very difficult to read into, like the, the one that you're experiencing now, Hari, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, at that point, you might, it might, it might just be that it's not your problem. It's this, it is, is the problem at, that uh, it's a problem with the report, Kraft Heinz report. So I think it's important to highlight that. Um, so thank you for bringing that out, Hari. Uh, but let's let's move forward in discussing some of the competitive advantages uh, here, Hari. Uh, 
So could you describe to us, uh, you know, is there any, let's go down the list. Um, is there any brand advantage, brand competitive advantage here? Yeah, I think that's, you know, definitely the case. Um, you know, everyone has heard of Kraft macaroni and cheese and Velveeta and, um, you know, Oscar Mayer and, you know, uh, Heinz ketchup and so on. Um, you know, these are all well-known brands, many of them, you know, hundreds of a uh, hundred years old, um, and have been in, you know, I grew up eating Kraft Mac and cheese and, you know, that kind of stuff is, it's, it's very well known, right? So the brand there has a lot of, um, mind share as it were. Um, but I think there is some level of it where, uh, that brand is not necessarily as strong as people would like it to be, right? I, I think mm. when you look at um, the craft brand, I can go now to the grocery store and get lots of different types of macaroni and cheese. And, you know, is it worth a price premium to buy craft mac and cheese? Well, probably not. I mean, the private store brand, you know, Costco brand or... Um, you know, Safeway or, or whatever store, you know, grocery store you have near you, you know, makes equivalent mac and cheese. So buying Kraft versus them, you know, it doesn't necessarily carry a huge weight, you know? Yeah. I think, I we'll think talk. the, yeah, well, go ahead. Go ahead, Harry. Well, so I, I mean, I, I think there is, the brand is really the, the only oh. moat that I, I would see here. Um, you know, because when we go down this list, what we're, we're going to find is, it, it it is it is a it is it is the the only thing that you will find with these food manufacturers and business you know tastes have changed in the way consumers think right so uh, you know I, I know I'm answering the next question on the checklist as well but uh, so I, I think just to sum it up yeah it's the brand is really the the strength of their their advantage right now yeah I mean you mentioned kind of the downside of the brand brand maybe some some of the weak points of the brand competitive advantage, the fact that consumers have changing behaviors all the time and there are all these competitors coming in with their own brand competitive advantage, right? Kraft is not the only player out there. They've got thousands of others, yep. um, it, which is, which is probably true, but it is, it is kind of in contrast to, you know, this is, you know, this is something we didn't talk about, but Kraft Heinz is, I'd say kind of famously known for the fact that there were, uh, they're one of the portfolio companies of, 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 of Berkshire, right? Yep. And so the bread and butter Berkshire play is, 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 is a kind of a, is a brand sort of moat where you have co brand like Coca-Cola. I think Coca-Cola is a good example of how, how Warren Buffett or the, the team, you know, makes, makes their decisions. Like Warren Buffett thinks Coca-Cola is this, this kind of prime example of how brand moat can really strengthen its, its, uh, its business. And in that light, how do you how do you see that versus something like Kraft Heinz, where you you, know, you posit that there is a brand, but yet it is it is not it is not strong. Yeah, I I think the I, I think the the best example, <clears throat> excuse me, of of this is kind of like Campbell's Soup, right? <clears throat> so for the longest time, Campbell's Soup was considered you know one of those unbreachable brand things. When you bought soup, you bought Campbell's soup. And in the last 10 or 15 years, it's kind of eroded as there mm -hmm. have been more store brands. There have been more, uh, there have been brands that have been associated with, uh, 
these companies that are, you know, uh, more on the organic or healthy line, you know, so, so there other things have kind of infiltrated their space. And I think a lot of that has actually become, come out from, uh, so like when you look at Coca-Cola, there isn't an alternative product, right? So Coke has Pepsi. People who like Coke generally don't like Pepsi, right? They're not interchangeable in your mind, right? Whereas when I think about macaroni and cheese or I think about uh, Velveeta, the, you know, cheese products or Oscar Mayer uh, or Planters or Maxwell House, you know, like uh, Maxwell House, you know, in the 80s, that was the only thing my mom had in her um, cupboard. And nowadays she has premium, you know, roast coffee that, you know, she gets from the grocery store, you know, with beans that she grinds in her in her kitchen and stuff like that. So, you know, the brand never really kind of, you know, it it kind of stayed in place and people's tastes kind of changed. Coke was able to keep their market share by advertising well. There wasn't a really strong alternative. The store brands have not been, you know, the same uh, and there isn't a big price difference between them and the store brands. And so most of the time, people will just opt for the Coke because it's a known commodity. And it's strange, right? I, I mean, I, I understand that how different these things are. But, you know, the thing that Kraft and other food manufacturers did when they made packaged foods is in order to increase their margins, they lowered the quality of the food. And they, you know, started replacing uh, pieces of the food they you know and then uh you know here to cut costs here to cut costs there and then eventually 10 years later you know the first five years nobody could tell the difference and then 10 years later the food just became worse right and so now yeah. it's a packaged food brand but has no quality that was what was originally associated with the comp you know the the business yeah and i want to i want to i want to get to that issue because i think that is at the heart of this boat uh, mo breach right if you will right so when i think about this issue if we could abstract some of the concepts here and make yep. that into some some of the maybe you know digestible lessons if yeah. you will the so a success story of brand moat coca-cola six uh, kind of a failure maybe failure is a too strong of a word but not as strong let's say Kraft heinz Case number two. Yeah. So the reason why they diverged, even though they start off at a good place, both at a good, good place as a brand mode, one successfully was able to secure their position. The other did not. Right. If we could abstract some of the some of the lessons, you talked about a couple of things. Quality. Right. You talked about quality just there. Yep. You talked about investing in the brand image. The second thing. And then I would say third thing, maybe it's just an intrinsically, intrinsically category dependent, right? Sure. When you think about food, there's always this consciousness, there's always this health conscious that goes into your equation, whether or not you buy certain one brand or the other. But when you're going out and buying beverages, like, you know, sugary, fizzy water, you don't really consider in consumers' minds health you know health benefits because you know that when you yep. drink coca-cola you're gonna you know this is not a healthy drink <laughs> so right. you, you come in with an expectation that is okay this is gonna be not good for my body but i'm gonna drink it anyway because i like it whereas 
you know, this is more of a, you know, this is a kind of a different play. Do you think that that's at play here? Yeah, I think there's definitely uh, a part of that there is that there is a, the products themselves are different. You know, like when you look at clothing versus shoes, right? Shoes have a moat, you know, like when we talked about Skechers, um, you know, there aren't as many shoe brands as there are apparel, you know, uh, brands. And, you know, very few of them actually have a moat around them. Um, you know, the, the clothing versus uh, shoes. Uh, you know, food and, and drink are kind of in different categories, right? You look at uh, brands that have longer staying power. Alcohol drinks seem to have a longer staying power than, you know, food. And I think it's because food has become a lot more commoditized and you have smaller subgroups of the population that, you know, used to be in the middle class and now have moved up in the world. I mean, I grew up in a solidly middle class family. We had a lot of the brands that were listed, you know, that I listed earlier. And then as we have, you know, I've gotten more, you know, wealthier and moved up in the socioeconomic spectrum. I've purchased less of that, right? And, you know, America has a smaller middle class than they used to in the 80s. Um, and then I think there's another component to this. So, you know, tastes have changed. But I think there, there's a, but I still drink, you know, Coke, right? That, yeah. that didn't change, right? Yeah. Um, but there's something that's also interesting to me about this is a lot of these brands are kind of rolled up, right? They were standalone businesses that were bought by Kraft they were brought under the craft uh, label or the Heinz label. And then they kind of what made them good in the first place was the quality, the value, the taste, you know, all of the things that they slowly beat out of the company. Right. And so the people who were originally running it and were, you know, uh, focused on coffee or focused on uh, Lunchables or focused on, you know, the, the dairy market had a, you know, closer eye to the ground than when you're a conglomerate, right? And so as a conglomerate, what you're trying to do is say economies of scale, the more businesses I have under one brand, I can de decrease the food distribution costs, I can have warehousing that makes me closer to all my suppliers and so on, right? But I think the biggest problem that you have with conglomerates is as they start acquiring these businesses, the individual businesses lose the driving force that made them good in the first place, right? The reason that you bought a good business is it was run by people who knew that business well, and they had no other obligations other than that business. Now they're brought up and they are, you know, the investment that may be made to improve the quality gets is, is not just at the brand level. It's above the brand level. And that person yeah. may say, I don't want to put in more money uh, sales are looking good. Let's try and find as many ways to cut costs and cut corners, right? And so yeah. they, they build up the following and then the following kind of has this hangover effect for several years uh, where they, they just, you know, out of habit go and buy this. And then suddenly one day they're, they wake up and like, wow, this food is really not that good. And they go to a friend's house and they say, oh, where's this macaroni and cheese is like so much better. Where is it from? And, you know, it's, this brand or that brand, and suddenly they're no longer a craft, you know, uh, you know, shopper, right? And that's yeah. kind of how it happens. And and I think we're in the late stages of that for craft. Yeah, and 
I want to I want to emphasize this point again. Um, I think you brought up a really good point about you know when these smaller brands focus on quality and that's how they start and then they reach some point in their market share, you know, it, it's noticed by the big whale and they basically gobble it up. And then once yep. they are in the mothership, they long they no longer have that disciplined focus on quality and they kind of lose lose out on that and that has you know obviously direct impact to the brand image and the brand recognition and the marketplace absolutely but i I want to point out this very interesting you know very interesting divergence between food and and like coke because i think there is a inherently different type of consumer behavior that's at play, which is, you know, for food, people are getting more conscious about what they consume, you know, this kind of organic movement, people are buying more, you know, healthy, healthy things, whereas, you know, this, you know, you know, soda uh, is, you know, you, you go into it with that expectation. So that sort of, you know, that, that sort of kind of relentless focus on quality is, isn't, isn't so much warranted. In that space because you know coca-cola had all they had to do is just stick with their stick with their recipe and they did it they did exactly that and they're now you know wildly successful and so i you know i just want to highlight that there is there's this there's a big big difference between food and and, and this soda category yeah Would you agree with that yeah and i i think it it's not necessarily that food, you know, I mean, like we can also look at like McDonald's, for example, right? Mm-hmm. McDonald's has been making the same kind of food and they have a clear distinct advantage above Burger King or Wendy's or, um, you know, Jack in the Box or name some other fast food place, right? That you can find it anywhere. They make very similar food wherever you are, uh, you know, across the country, a Big Mac tastes like a Big Mac, you know, that kind of thing. Um, they've protected that brand very closely, right? And I think Kraft at one time had a very uh, solid brand. Um, and I think it's just slowly kind of leaked away, right? And I, I don't know that it's necessarily gone, but I, I do know that it's a, it's not as, you know, I, I mean, I just looked in my fridge right before we started this and none of the brands that were on this list are listed in my fridge. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, if I go to the store and I find ham, I don't really care if it's Oscar Mayer or, you know, mm-hmm. some other brand or, you know, uh, whatever. I'm not paying attention to that anymore. And if I go and get macaroni and cheese, the mac and cheese that we have for our kids is not craft, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's they a lot of these things, you know, these companies actually started these brands and start made that, you know, the iconic food item when you think craft you think mac and cheese you think you know the cheese singles and stuff like that i don't have any of those anymore but they were you know the prepackaged cheese that you would get in the store was you know based on craft um you know craft kind of pioneered that and made that their thing and a lot of that is gone now so yeah so i i think there was they had the opportunity once they got into the lead position and i think this is largely something where they didn't continue that position sure so, um, yeah i think um i think those points are pretty really clear um you know quality not maintaining the quality which translates into kind of eroding eroding brand uh competitive advantage you have the kind of the mna 
uh, effect here that ties into quality. And then there's there might be interesting uh, lessons to be learned here with in terms of kind of consumer behavior when when we approach food versus uh, sodas. Um, so th all these things kind of are very interesting elements that play uh, uh, here when we when we are talking about Kraft Heinz. Uh, so let, let's just go down the list. Um, I know you, you, you mentioned up front that brand is kind of the only thing that you see here, but let's just go down the list just to uh, do our due diligence. Uh, network effects. No, there's no benefit for, <clears throat> for somebody else having craft that I would, or, or craft Heinz that I would have it. So sure. Switching costs. No, it's clearly very cheap to switch from one brand to another. Yep. Low cost provider. Um, you know, like, like we've seen in the last few weeks that we've, we've had discussions, I'm sure there is some benefit to their distribution and warehousing and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, but again, I'm not going to chalk up their, um, that to, to them. You know, I, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't see that being a strong moat for them. Yeah. And then lastly, intangible assets. So I think they do have some of these, you know, in that, um, you know, they actually mentioned some of the patents that they have and, mm. um, you know, their, their 75% of their balance sheet is actually goodwill. So, you know, they are buying assets that are, um, have some intangible quality to them. Um, mm. In fact, the reason that they had a huge loss in 2018 was because they had to write down a lot of the goodwill on their books. So, again, I, I'm not, you know, it's hard for me to just blanket say that that's the reason that they're successful, right? It's, it's the brand, you know, I, I think sure. is, is their moat and, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily the strongest. So. Sure. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, let's go down to the next question. We kind of answered this one, but uh, let's just uh, get it out. How durable is the competitive advantage? What are the risks to the current competitive advantage? Yeah, I mean, I think we we already kind of covered a lot of this. So I, I do think there's a big risk, you know, in that um, what you built up over time has changed. The country has changed the uh, the overall, you know, business that you created has kind of lost favor with uh, society. I'm not sure that there is a. Uh, I mean, I, I, like you look at their, their revenue and, you know, I, I've talked mostly about craft, but, you know, 26% of their revenue comes from condiments. And, you know, if you go to any uh, um, uh, fast food restaurant, it's a Heinz ketchup. Um, you know, that's the kind of ketchup you see at barbecues and picnics and stuff like that, that you go to at, you know, um, at schools and churches and stuff like that. So, yeah, they have a lot of um, entrenched, um, contracts. So maybe there is some, you know, switching cost for, you know, if you have a, a large business like, um, McDonald's or something like that, that you would sign longer term contracts. Um, but again, I, I think all of this is under, you know, at risk, right. Um, as, as we move forward with, uh, you know, they really have to keep up, right. I think is the big, the big story here. Yeah, just uh, you know, just digging up some numbers here, uh, just for, just for the context, you know, some colors, some color on on Kraft Heinz. 
uh, their you know market cap is about forty billion dollars, uh, doing sales of twenty six billion. Right, Harry? About twenty six billion in twenty eighteen. Yeah, twenty six, uh, and it's been flat for three years now. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the ballpark we're looking at here. So a market cap of forty billion dollars, and then uh, total revenue of twenty six billion. We'll talk more about the details uh, in the next episode, and uh, and uh, and a little bit here, and a little bit in this episode. Okay, uh, let's move on. What is the company's long term prospects and runway for growth? So right. I don't see that. Um, you know, they haven't grown in three years, so. Revenue is kind of flat for has been flat for several years now, and uh, I I find it hard to imagine that there's going to be a long runway for growth here. Um, I I think there's actually a risk that it may may reverse and go backwards. So um, mm. I can't say that I, there's anything that in here that makes me think, uh, you know, that it's protected. Right? I I don't mm. see anything here to to make that claim. Yeah, this is really interesting. Do you think that you know, it's when companies have year to year for several years flat revenue? You know, it's there's something bigger at play, which might be that the company's going through a kind of pivotal moment in their life cycle of of, of, of corporation. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know one thing that's going to happen to them is, as with a lot of businesses during a recession, things kind of change, right? And people would say, well, craft is kind of a staples business when, um, you know, when the times get tough, people re- kind of revert to the cheaper foods, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen to them, right? I don't have a whole lot of insight into this business. I think that it's very hard for me to say that there is a good runway for this company that they have a moat that'll they'll fall back on um and frankly you know the things that the the brands that they have i remember i you know i I was looking at this list while you were talking and uh i remember advertisements for almost all of them as a kid and i can't remember any of them now Mm -hmm. you know like i remember all the craft uh mac and cheese it's the cheesiest and you know all of these things that they used to do and all of that's gone, right? My kids mm. don't he- hear all of that stuff. My, <clears throat> I don't remember any ketchup ads from Heinz. Uh, I'm really struggling to remember actually a lot of these, you know. So yeah. it's I think what's happening is over time the m- mind share kind of just slowly leaks, right? Mm. And you know, people who are older and you know older generations remember it, and they just kind of their shopping habits don't change. Uh, and then, you know, like my parents, they, that's kind of how they shop. And then as newer, you know, generations get to adulthood and so forth, they just don't adopt this um, going forward. And so, yeah, it seems like, you know, it's a, as we talked about, got a long way, long, long term prospects runway for growth seems uh, pretty minimal. But I, w- I want to bring this point up because I think a lot of a lot of corporations point to this and say, okay, this, this is going to be the next source of growth. And, you know, a lot of times that's, you know, it's kind of an easy, easy way to sell yourself as a growth company, even though they might have reached a peak. And that is China and the emerging market. What is your assessment of that here? 
Yeah, so their rest of the world only grew at about 5%, while the other business lines kind of shrunk. Um, so I don't know that they have any special insight into China. And, I mean, I don't know enough about the Chinese consumer to know what they're really buying. Um, I don't. I just don't see there's... Uh, I mean, what they've already penetrated is kind of what it is, right? Mm. And so if, there's, if they're growing there, then they're offsetting losses here in the U.S. and Canada, mm. right? Mm. And, you know, I, I think one thing that may help kind of elucidate where their market is, is 22% of their sales actually in the U.S. come from Walmart. Um, and, you know, so that kind of tells you that um, almost a quarter of their sales are coming from, you know, the typical Walmart consumer is going to be buying, you know, the prepackaged foods, you know, that kind of stuff that Kraft uh, and Heinz would sell, which makes sense, right? I, I think, um, you know, we're not talking about high-end food that, you know, wealthier people would buy, right? It's These are foods that are kind of staples, but even in that segment, there's a lot more options that are available to people now. And I, I mean, the thing that frustrated me about this annual report is they didn't even mention that kind of stuff. Like the competition section, they said e-commerce is a problem, uh, large format discounting is a comp problem and private labels, but they didn't really go into any specifics and they didn't really mention who is eating their lunch or why is it, you know, you know, where is it being replaced? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just didn't see that. And so as much as I liked, you know, or as much as I understand this, I mean, uh, everybody here eats food, right? It was hard for me to see like, foreign markets being a you know savior for this company when they can't protect their domestic turf right sure yeah that's an interesting uh take um it's certainly a valid one i think okay uh let's move on to the next question does the company require a lot of capital reinvestment to maintain its business can it grow without any further investment so i i don't think it's going to grow right i think that's that ship is kind of sailed and it's going to be hard for them um, you know, I, I don't know that, uh, capital expenditure was all that much. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to look it up right now. You know, it was less than a billion dollars that they spent on CapEx on average for the last three years. It's hovering around a billion, uh, for a company that makes about, um, had about three to four billion in uh, I'm sorry, uh, $2.5 billion from net, net cash flow from operations. So they're spending about a billion uh, on CapEx. So, hmm. you know, I, I'm not, I'm just not a, there's not a whole lot here that excites me about, you know, about their growth prospects and being able to grow without um, uh, really having to sh put a lot of money into the business to change, you know, how things yeah. work. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, last, uh, last question. Does the company have favorable relationship uh, with the following? Any, I guess, let, let's, the, let's ask the other question, which is, does the company have non-favorable relationships with the following? You know, is there any f red flags that you see here, either with customers, suppliers, employees, regulators, community? I think this no. question is kind of inconsequential, uh, given that we, you know, the main piece of this 
this segment is really talking about competitive advantage, but we should yeah. go through this anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we'd already mentioned 22% of their sales in the U.S. come from Walmart. Um, five of their largest accounts cover 49% in the U- of their sales in the U.S. Mm. and 71% in Canada. Um, but mm. it's much lower in Europe at only 26%. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's the biggest risk to them is honestly the... Um, you know they they are somewhat dependent on since they don't have their own stores, they are being they are dependent on um, pleasing their retailer like Walmart or Costco or so on, and you know Walmart is going to do what's best for Walmart, not what's best for Kraft, right? And I think Walmart sees that as well. I can offer a very similar product um, with a private label, you know Sam's Choice or uh, I forget the name of. Uh, the Walmart brand store brand, um, you know, that they can put right next to craft. So, mm-hmm. you know, they may have favorable relationships, but I, I, you know, I would say that the, I don't see any unfavorable relationships, but I also don't see that that relationship even matters to Walmart. Right. In some ways. Yeah. I mean, from Walmart perspective or, or any retailer perspective, right. Yeah. They're trying to just squeeze they're, they're, I mean, Walmart is kind of notorious for this, right? Yeah. They have all the scale in the world. <laughs> they're right. forcing suppliers to, if they want to, if you want to work with Walmart, basically, you know, your margins are going to be, you know, very, very slim because they're going to yep. force you to provide to them the cheapest option possible. And yep. then they're going to, you know, add on a little markup. Uh, and then, you know, that's what they keep. But, uh, from, from from their perspective, it is it is to it is to acquire source products at, at lowest cost possible. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So no red flags. Uh, not you know, some red flags here uh, in terms of the customer, um, uh, but nothing that you can see in terms of regulators, employees, suppliers. No. Um not really. I mean, they have so many employees, 38,000, and they're all over the world. I don't know that a union or a strike would really affect them too much. Mm. So I'm not too concerned. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Um, any more comments before we close out this episode, Hari? I think we talked about quite a bit about you know the competitive advantage, the brand, or the lack, the lack thereof. Um, we talked about kind of why that might be. You know, we covered kind of the, the quality aspect of this, the M&A and the lack of marketing uh, that uh, that uh, we've, we've, we've been seeing from them. Um, any, anything else you want to add here before we close out this episode, Hari? Um, no, I think we'll, uh, we'll kind of close up here and then um, kind of talk about some of the other, the valuation aspects and things like that, management uh, in the next episode. Great. All right. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, again, we're going down a checklist. So if you guys uh, don't have access to the checklist, please email us at info at valueinvestor.org. And uh, if you want to join our Slack channel, uh, please send, an, send us an email at info at valueinvestor.org as well. Uh, again, Slack channel is a, is a place where all of our listeners uh, can, can gather and message us directly, talk to each other directly and post interesting articles and make suggestions on what we should cover in the next podcast. So please uh, do send us uh, an email. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks. Thanks.